0: No my haere Welcome to the Maxim Institute podcast. My name is Tim Wilson. I'm Executive Director at Maxim Institute. Trust, or the lack thereof, has gone from being a pressing issue to an urgent one. Over the years, we've witnessed a steady decline in trust in the West and in recent times have seen this decline accelerate in our own country. The post-World War II era gave birth to a consensus on economic and social liberalism in governments. Now that consensus has been shattered, revealing a political climate that is more fevered and volatile than in memory. Yet trust is so necessary, democratically and economically. People in high trust societies are healthier, happier and they live longer. So this is important. In today's episode, we're plumbing this critical issue via the recent 2023 Sir John Graham Lecture by Associate Professor Tom Simpson. Tom explores whether our future is marked by ever-increasing political polarization, or if, hopefully, there's a chance to forge a new consensus with trust at its core. So get ready to listen, learn, perhaps disagree, agreeably, and reflect as you immerse yourself in Tom's thought-provoking lecture.
1: Lady Graham, Sir Ron, and Lady Carter, Honourable Members of Parliament, Kiora, have I pronounced it correctly? I hope I have. So there's just an amazing energy here tonight. I've really, really enjoyed the vibe and the buzz, and I can see the excitement that you've had as a wider extended Maxim family coming together after such a long time. And it's just a real pleasure and privilege for me to be here and to speak to you. And I'd like to say thank you very much to Tim Wilson for the very kind and generous invitation and being part of this recovery, if you like, after COVID. And there's a real sense of familiarity. Actually, this is my first time in New Zealand, but nonetheless, there's a real sense of familiarity uh, in coming here. And uh, some of it is... So in Britain, we like to talk about the country... uh, uh, Brits like to talk about the country as one that punches above its weight. I actually think that's more true here. You're very, very small, but the impact you have is really significant. Oxford is full of Kiwis. Uh, I sort of bump into Kiwis all the time. Uh, You've got terrible weather as well, just like Britain. (laughs) Um, And uh, I'm also aware that I've, I've kind of landed at the same time as you're in the middle of an election season. And actually, what I'm picking up is a sense of familiarity in that, in the dynamics. And what I want to do tonight is speak about some of the dynamics that I've seen uh, emerging in the UK. And it'll be interesting in discussion to see how much of this resonates in your context and whether some of the lessons that I think we've been learning in the UK situation uh, may have relevance here. Okay, so what is it that I'm talking about? The UK went through a very clear inflection point in its domestic politics in 2016 in the referendum to leave the European Union. And then shortly later that year, the US presidential election of Donald Trump. Both of these were surprising results for many people, And both of them were accompanied by a growing sense of polarization within society, of a red tribe and a blue tribe going at each other, increasing sense of fracture, increasing sense of social cohesion being lost, increasing sense of distrust growing. And what do I mean by political polarization? Here are just two things that I think are really important. The first is people stopped thinking for themselves, okay? So what you got is you got ideas coming in packages. So your opinion on gun ownership might predict your opinion on abortion, might predict your opinion on tax policy. These are very, very different policy issues, and if you're thinking for yourself, you might easily come to different opinions on them, but what happened is they became a package. They became a blue package and a red package on these different areas. And along with that came increasing emotional hostility. So in both countries, there's been a lot of very strong words used from both sides about members of the opposing political tribe. When I vote, it's not so much that there's a positive platform here that I am excited by. It's that I want to keep them out, So there's a growth of what's in the the lingo, negative partisanship. Okay, I, I don't like them. I distrust them. I want to keep them out. Okay, and that's the domestic inflection point of 2016. US and UK show this very dramatically. But we've seen this across many other societies, continental Europe, but much wider than that. Brazil, Latin America, Indian subcontinent, similar dynamics, slightly different fissure lines. But nonetheless, these polarizing dynamics taking place. And more recently, we have this international inflection point that we've just gone through, most dramatically Russia's invasion of Ukraine, but we are clearly now in a different context where democracies and authoritarian countries are contesting for the future of the global order in the coming 20 years. So the question I want to address tonight with you is how can the pieces of society's jigsaw be put together in a way that promotes flourishing? Okay, human flourishing, societal flourishing, that's what we want, not fracture, discontent, and anger. How can we rebuild trust? Okay, that's the question. Right, so some of you may be sitting there thinking, Uh, right, trust, it's all kind of, um, uh, isn't this all a bit utopian, (laughs) right? Uh, Hasn't democracy always been a fist fight, a gutter fight? You know, we come to the election. What's an election? It's a contest, right? It's a competition for power, as Joseph Schumpeter called it. It's an organized competition for political power. Isn't it just utopian to think otherwise? And I want to suggest that it's not. Okay, I want to suggest that democracy at a very deep level fundamentally depends on trust. And here's the starting thought to get this idea uh, going for you. Um, When I vote, I go into the voting booth, I cast my lot, what I do in that situation is I agree to be bound by the result, whether it's the result I wanted or not. Okay. That is the fundamental exchange that happens in democracy. We all have different opinions. I certainly know what I want to win. I have my vision of the common good. Yours may be different. And I agree to be bound if there are more of you voting for that outcome than me. That is an extraordinary liability. That is an extraordinary decision uh, to do. Why would I do that? I'm going to do that only if there's a fundamental level of trust about what we collectively are trying to achieve. So I've got to trust that when the people in power come to the end of their term, they're going to step down. Many countries in the world, you can't take that for granted. I've got to trust that. I've got to trust that people aren't going to gerrymander the constituency boundaries when they're in power. I've got to trust that they're not going to pack the courts in favor of, there's all sorts of procedural norms that I must trust people for. So I think as an analogy, it's like going into the boxing ring. Do you trust your opponent in the boxing ring? Well, they're trying to whack you around the head, okay? So in one sense, no. But I do trust my opponent not to come at me with a knife, okay? So there's a kind of level of background trust which is required for the competition to make sense. So the, the trust that I'm kind of thinking about here is not the trust in individual politicians, leader of this party versus leader of that party. That's just like, that's the political weather. It rains one day, it's sunny the next day. We might have a trusted politician now, a less trustworthy politician. Okay, right, so the UK, we've had a steady stream of untrustworthy politicians at the the moment. Uh, It's been quite good fun sometimes, but uh, (laughs) we're all sort of breathing a sigh of relief right now in the country that it's all quite boring politics for a while. but, uh, but what we're interested in is the climate. Okay. That's what matters. The weather comes and goes. What we're interested in the climate. Politically, what we're interested in is trust in the system. Okay. Individuals in the system will come and go. We want to know that we trust the system. And there's a, there's a lovely phrase from the British Constitution that I think captures this idea really well. So uh, we talk about His Majesty's loyal. Opposition, And I love that phrase, His Majesty's loyal opposition. So it's a contest. There's the governing party, there's the opposing party, and they're going to duke it out. They're going to argue it out. They're going to critique each other. And the opposition is loyal. Not loyal to the other party, loyal to, in this case, His Majesty. Loyal to something that comes before the political Process and each country for a democracy to be embedded doesn't have to be a monarchy, doesn't have to be the British Crown, free to make your own decision, Uh, but it has to be something. There has to be something that's pre political that unites the country within which the political contest takes place. Okay, and we know from social science, from empirical political science, that political trust really matters. Okay. If you don't trust the government, you're not going to support them when they've got a new program to try and solve problems. And goodness knows, we've got so many problems in our societies that we need government to be part of the solution for. If you trust the government politically, you're going to support long term policy making rather than short term. It predicts compliance with the law. So uh, people pay more taxes when they trust the government. They're less likely to claim welfare payments that they're not entitled to. And during the pandemic, it's become almost a truism that, quote, COVID is less deadly where there is trust. And in high trust societies where people trust each other horizontally, other citizens, social trust, people are happier, healthier, and wealthier. So trust has been described as Quote, like the air we breathe, the cement or the glue that holds society together, it's part of the deep grammar of society. The, uh, the story is told of Confucius. He was asked, what does government need? He replied, enough food, enough weapons and the trust of the people. If you had to go without one of these three, which one would you give up? Confucius replied, weapons. If you had to go without one of the remaining two, which would you give up? He replied, food. From ancient times, death has been the fate of everyone. But without the trust of the people, the government cannot stand. Okay. So I started off by talking about this experience of political polarization, of fractures within society which are being expressed in political conflict. And polarization is deadly to trust. It's deadly to trust. So think about how you can be let down by someone you've trusted. They might let you down because they're incompetent, OK? Often happens. They might also let you down because they've betrayed you. Which one is easier to forgive? I think it's incompetence, isn't it, in general? In gen- much harder to forgive bad faith and betrayal. And one of the features of a politically polarized society is that public discussion becomes Accusations of bad faith on the part of the other side. So political polarisation is like acid eating away at the foundations of a society. Now, where are you as a country? Uh, New Zealand historically is really high trust. You're actually an outlier in the international league tables uh, in levels of trust Uh, you're near you're near Sweden okay right so so the Nordics are kind of everyone's paradigm but you're very near Sweden Uh, uh, I think uh, you're 59% Sweden 64% okay political trust an astonishing 84% from 2020 which was really recruited successfully in the start of the Covid pandemic although as I understand has become much more controversial Since and there's been a quite dramatic 10% drop in political trust. And the US is the really cautionary tale here. So, in the 1960s, four out of five people said you could trust the government to do the right thing. That figure today, one out of five. And the US is almost ungovernable now. Okay, it's almost ungovernable. Okay. Right, so, um, what's the solution? (laughs) Tim's flown me over here, but I have an answer. (laughs) Um, Right, here's the question that I... I'm going to answer the question with another question. Um, And you're going to have different views on this as well, and I'm going to be interested to hear your views. Is the distrust... Is the distrust grounded or misguided? Okay, that's the question. Let, okay, let me, let, me try and, let me try and unpack this. This is, this is the money question. This is what everything hinges on. Okay, so one view is growing distrust is misguided. So the poor old public are getting stacks of misinformation thrown at them, and they can't work out what's true and false, and they're being whipped up into a frenzy by social media algorithms, which to drive engagement, promote outrage and hostility. Okay. And on this account, there is growing distrust, but our institutions are perfectly trustworthy. And what we need to do is give people the right information so that they can start to trust again. Okay, do you see how that works? So that's one explanation. Here's the other explanation. The distrust is a grounded response to a loss of trustworthiness on the part of our institutions. Our institutions are less trustworthy than they were and we are and people are responding to that by withdrawing trust. What would what would this explanation look like? So the idea would be something like Those in power represent an unduly narrow political outlook, defending policies in the language of justice, but priorities often express class-based material interests and social preferences. What we have in society is, if you like, a laptop class and a tactile class, a group of people who make their living by working on a laptop, manipulating symbols, often geographically mobile, uh, able to form and end fluid relationships, and often in positions of social and political power. The tactile class, by contrast, spend their working lives building physical things or growing them, maybe have an instinctive concern for the givenness of human nature and the rootedness of the flourishing life, and celebrate commitment. Okay. So this is this is an explanation. So the anger that we see is an expression of political exclusion by the tactile class against a laptop class who have control of the levers of political and social power. <coughs> right. So I've given you the question, which is right? Right. This is really difficult to answer. I can't give you any data to knock it down. It's a matter of judgment. It's Your your answer will probably be influenced by where you stand. So you probably want to know a bit about where I stand. so, so I'm a member of the laptop class, right? (laughs) I mean, I brought my laptop with me, (laughs) and uh, and I've used it a lot. I I get paid money to manipulate symbols. You know, it's extraordinary. Uh, And I belong to an institution, Oxford University, which I'm very proud to belong to. It's a wonderful university. And it's a, it's a bastion, if you like, for bringing people into the laptop class. And I know because I work there that its members have good instincts, so I, I think we shouldn't be involved in name calling. Uh, they want the good in general. But by personal instinct and outlook, I'm actually a member of the tactile class. And my biography that Paul, in his very generous words of introduction, shared shows, showed that, I think, as well, that I, I kind of straddle this in my interests. And so, my answer to my question is actually, I think it's a bit of both, okay? I think the distrust that we see in our society, certainly in the UK context, part of it is a result of manipulation and of um, psychology and people running away with the emotion, the very powerful negative emotions on social media. And part of it also seems to me to be a response to this exclusion from political power of a much wider group within society. And the Brexit referendum is actually really excellent evidence for that. We can say more about that in Q&A. And if you, okay, so you might be a bit frustrated. Right, come on, Tom, you know, (laughs) give us a real answer, a bit of both, you're hedging your bets. So if you push me to get off the fence, it seems to me that the latter point is correct, is substantively correct, that the people certainly in the context I'm familiar with, who currently exercise power, reflect a relatively slim proportion of the population and have some distinctive and non-representative ideological interests. So if that's correct, okay, you may disagree, if that's correct, the fundamental challenge that we face to renew trust is to renew the elite. It's to renew the people who are making decisions in positions of political power to bring it about that the tactile class, the interests, the concerns, the the outlook is represented in the corridors of political and social and cultural power. And until this happens, it seems to me that distrust is likely to grow and with it, polarization and this is not a new task. Okay, this is not a new task. So one episode historically where this has been really front and center was in actually during World War II. So if you look at that period, there was a flourishing of thought by particularly intellectuals by about nineteen forty-three, as the as the final outcome of the campaign was clear and there was beginning to be a turning of attention to once the defeat Nazi Germany had been assured, and of Imperial Japan, once that defeat had been assured, what are the societies that were going to be rebuilt at that time? And people then turned to education as one of the core answers. We needed to build more homes, we needed to build the welfare state in the UK, all of this that was going on, but we needed to educate a new generation. Jacques Maritain was a French intellectual uh, who played a key role in the Uh, human rights movement at the time, uh, Catholic intellectual, and he's representative of this turn. And these words, they, they ring, actually, I think. They're very strong, but they ring through the decades. He writes, I say that the person of common humanity is not possessed of a less sound judgment and less equitable instincts than those social categories which believe themselves superior. And that's not because he's more intelligent, but because he's less tempted. He has less chance of going astray in the major issues which concern him, the common man, than the so-called elite of informed and competent and rich and high-born and highly cultivated or highly cunning persons who've cut themselves off from the people and whose political imbecility, baseness of soul and corruption are today astounding the universe. very, very strong words. I I wouldn't even dare write them myself, actually, for this day. Um, So where is the leadership to come from? And Maritain goes on. He says, I say that the inspirational leadership which the people need must always live in communion with this people. Whether we will or no, the new leadership must come from the depths of the nations. It will be composed of the working and peasant elite, together with the elements of the former leading classes which have decided to work with the people. The essential problem of reconstruction is not a problem of plans, it is a problem of humanity, the problem of the new leadership to come. And I actually think we stand... At an inflection point in history that is of similar significance to the end of the World War II period. The order, the international order that was bequeathed at the end of that period has stood for 70 years. And internally it is fragmented and frayed. And externally it is going to be under pressure in a way that it has not been for many, many decades. Okay? And so we face a fundamental task, an urgent task, I think, in our societies. And that is the problem of the new leadership to come. Where does this come from, this new leadership? Let me let me speak biographically. Okay. Uh, so I joined I joined the Royal Marines uh, as a 22 year old. Um, I spent five years there. Uh, it's uh, it, it was at turns terrifying. Um, The most terrifying experience for me was not actually operations, it was training. It was turning up for training. Uh, My father dropped me off. He told me afterwards that he cried on the drop-off in the car park. The barbed wire in the 1960s block uh, was just too intimidating. Uh, we um, We were a pretty diverse bunch. So visibly, we were not diverse. We were all white men, I think, apart from two Jamaicans who were with us, who were wonderful. Uh, but so visibly not diverse, socioeconomically pretty diverse, in terms of outlook, pretty diverse. Uh, my bunk mates, excuse me, I'd say it's a massive pleasure to have my Cy Sparks, who uh, dragged drag me through training, uh, here with me tonight. Um, uh, we had four guys who were core commissioned, so they come through the ranks trained. We had two Cambridge grads, uh, I was one. We had an aspiring poet. Uh, the Jamaicans, I mentioned, they, were, they ended up colder on the course than they'd ever been before. Uh, we had someone from an Aberdeen council estate, tough upbringing. Uh, what we learnt on that time was, uh, as officers, as we were training, we had, to do, we had to perform not just to the same standard as the Marines, but to a higher standard. So the speed march, nine-mile speed march, the men would do uh, and, that, and then enjoy their water, and we would then do a troop attack. At the end of it, the 30-mile march across Dartmoor, and you know, full kit and everything, uh, the Marines were doing in, uh, in eight hours. We would do it in seven. Uh, we didn't learn just skills, okay? We did learn some skills. I've forgotten all of them. I couldn't, you know, I couldn't strip a rifle now, but uh, it'd be a bit embarrassing. We did do that, but it cha- it changed who we are, who we were. We were cohesive at the end. We were loyal to each other and the wider core, we were we were hard, we were ready to deploy. And all of us, uh, I think I'm right in saying all of us deployed operationally most multiple times. Five have commanded units, uh, We've had a military cross awarded a mention in dispatches. I was told by a member of the patrol uh, who was on that military, uh, for which the military cross was awarded, quote, you wouldn't believe it if Hollywood made the film. Had an MBE, an OBE. We have one member who lives with Uh, PTSD, we have one who has one Lynn left uh, and is now about to represent the UK at at the Paralympics. We have one who died, uh, all those as a result of service in Afghanistan. Okay. why do I say this? There are two lessons I want to bring out. Here's the first. Leadership is based on earned respect. The willingness to go further, the willingness to sacrifice yourself, the willingness to serve others. That's how leadership is earned. And we live in a culture now where there are rival calls to this ideal. So there are calls to authenticity, think of UBU. You you. There are calls to self definition of putting yourself first. Think of the self-care movement. And all of these have their place. I don't, I don't want to be misheard on that. But the primary call for a leader, particularly in public service, is to prioritise the common good over your personal good. That is what qualifies you for leadership. And this is, this is not a new point. Okay, this is age-old. Edmund Burke writing in the 18th century, there is no qualification for government but virtue and wisdom. Wherever they are actually found, they have in whatever state, condition, profession or trade, the passport of heaven to human place and honour. The passport of heaven to human place and honour. And the test that Burke proposed for the process by which political leaders are selected should be should be that it should have a tendency, direct or indirect, to select the person who has a view to duty. Okay, so that was my first lesson. It was a lesson about leadership. Here's the second lesson that I took away from that time. Where do such leaders come from? They come from institutions, okay? They come from institutions which have formed them, that have generated, that have sustained an ethos and a DNA, and they've inducted their members into that ethos and DNA. And the military, the Royal Marines in particular, was that for me. It was formative, and it was unifying. It took a bunch of people from all sorts of walks of life who wouldn't otherwise be together, and it brought us together, and it gave us a shared purpose, shared sense of identity, and thirdly, it was formative, it was unifying, and it was selective. Okay, there were standards of excellence. Uh, Campbell, thank you for the intimidating words as I, <laughs> as I prepared to stand. And we need, as a society, good institutions. We need strong institutions. We need schools to play this role. Universities, okay, I'm in a university. Universities are not going to be formative, at least not in this, not in this way, unfortunately. They might be formative in other ways, which then has to be undone later, unfortunately. <laughs> um, uh, so I, and I'm, I'm part of a bit of the University of Oxford, which I think is doing a great job. Let me hasten to add on positive formation. We need our churches and religious institutions to be formative in this way, to hold standards of excellence out. We need our local communities to be formative in this way. And the workplace is increasingly, the role that the workplace plays in our lives, businesses are increasingly going to need to find that there's an ethos of service which forms people. And we have a key challenge, I think, to sustain these institutions. So two lessons, leadership. Leadership is of service. And secondly, institutions. We need strong, robust, healthy institutions to renew the leadership uh, for the younger generations that are coming through, which are going to be playing the part of renewing trust within our societies. Let me just, before I close, uh, some caveats. There's other stuff as well that we're going to have to do that's urgent. I haven't talked about the economic basis for renewing trust, and there's there's like five lectures on that, which I'm not qualified to give, uh, on how that should be done. I've not talked about the role that the family plays in renewing trust, but it plays an essential role. I've wanted to pick out just one thing that I think is fundamental. So let me close. I think these themes are uh, maybe particularly apt for a lecture dedicated to uh, Sir John Graham. And uh, it's a real pleasure to meet Lady Sheila uh, this evening and a real privilege to be part of this event. Uh, so okay, so this is the sentence I wrote in June. Uh, While Sir John first made his mark captain in the All Blacks, with a World Cup currently being contested and an underperforming English team, I obviously feel very uncomfortable talking about rugby. Okay. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Uh, So I do still feel really uncomfortable talking about that. Um, But the discomfort may be shared a little bit. (laughs) Is that that right? Uh, You'll thump us in the quarterfinals, don't worry. Um, So it was his career as an educator that I turned to when preparing for for tonight. And a video of him addressing his final intake of boys to Auckland Grammar School in 1993 captures the sense of standards that he clearly held himself to and those around him, quote, our expectations for you are very high. We expect you to excel. We expect you to do your best. To do that, you've got to keep up the pace. I would have been within about a year or two of the boys as they were sat there, and I felt a judder going up my spine as I heard that, and I was taken back to my own School days, I'm sure they felt the same. And that seemed to be a constant theme. On his first prize-giving speech as headmaster in 1973, 20 years previously, he stated, quote, the school will continue to value hard work, discipline, involvement in cultural activities and sport as a firm base upon which young men can establish their own personality and values. And I think Sir John expressed for the grammar school the same core challenge that I think now faces many of our societies. How to be unapologetic about excellence, itself part of a principled framework which unites us and within which pluralism is possible. We now face the challenge in our time of confronting the erosion of trust that I've described. And if we want to hand on societies that nurture the young to be adults, they need to know that they can trust us, one another, and our institutions. And this work must start now. Thank you.
2: Tina Koto, Good evening. It's lovely to be with you all tonight. Um, It's a real pleasure to be here. It was also a pleasure to get the advanced copy of Tom's address because my role is to bring a response, but a response grounded here in Aotearoa, New Zealand. What does our story tell us about these questions of mistrust? And what might our responses be? In what ways are we different or the same to the messages that we heard from Tom. These are interesting times. Historians will say that they're not unprecedented times, and I think it's important for us to remember that. But nevertheless, they bring major uncertainty to us, and it's an uncertainty that we are not used to in this current generation. If we think about the things that we have been facing in the last wee while, a global pandemic that exposed us to state actions that we have not experienced for generations and that have left us weary of government control. We now face significant economic hardship that is reaching into both our public and private sectors and will have flow-on effects to come for at least, I think, the next 10 years or so. Regardless of where we may each stand on the issue of climate change and global warming, I think it's hard to deny that our physical environment is in growing need of greater protection and care from us. And in our beautiful land, here in Aotearoa, we're experiencing a second, and in my view, a very welcome and much needed renaissance of te ao Māori. And that relaissance is asking of all of us questions about this nation's identity and about what our future direction ought to be. All of these things, a mix of good and bad, create significant uncertainty for us. And I wanted to add to the story that Tom has told us about what's happening at the levels of government and international uh, relations to what's happening here at home. And it's not just issues of trusting our politicians, it's simply the fact of living in times of uncertainty that challenge our willingness to trust each other, let alone institutions and politicians. Um, The surveys have looked good for a while about New Zealand and our levels of trusts, but most recently, in the last three to four months, we've had a, a run of surveys, both locally and internationally, that actually tell us that we're actually joining the rest of the gang worldwide. Uh, Unfortunately for us, our levels of trust have dropped across all of the major cultural institutions in society. So, um, a big report out just recently from the Edelman um, uh, surveys telling us that trust in government, in NGOs, in the business sector, in the media, and in our churches are dropping. And we are seeing signs here of the polarization that Tom also mentioned. I want to add to the conversation by recognising, I think, two additional factors that are playing out internationally and here, but that I guess pull the, the story down a wee bit to what's happening at the grassroots, what's happening amongst us as individuals, as members of our society. And I see two features. One is that our means of communication, the way that we interact with each other, has fundamentally changed and at a pace more rapidly seen in history than any previous communications revolution I think we've seen. I'd, I'd dare to suggest um, even more significant than the arrival of the printing press. What do I mean? Well, our modern platforms enable communication with very low barriers to entry. So communication now is instant. Great, but the downside is it leaves us very little time for reflection, to think through what we want to say to each other. And the quantity of communication coming at us now is just simply too massive to keep abreast of. Secondly, our communications are unrestrained. There's no moderator or editor sitting in between me, the speaker, and you, the hearer, in the way that there used to be. And that's affecting the social norms, the way we communicate with each other. It's much easier to say things online that we wouldn't necessarily say in person. And watching my teenage kids in a sense, there's a tragedy for, them, for me there But what I'm watching is that the way they communicate online is spilling over into how they communicate in person. We've got things to watch for, people. And finally, our communications are self-perpetuating, largely because of those factors. We all know about echo chambers. Some of them we create ourselves, but sadly, many of them now are created by algorithms we have very little control over. So that's my first major feature to add to the, to the conversation. The second one, and to some extent um, Tom talked about this too, but it's an inc- increasing identification with smaller and more defined groups to which I feel that I belong, rather than a sense of my belonging to a broader local or national community. These identities are formed in reference to perhaps our politics, uh, may be our religious or spiritual beliefs, maybe our ethnicities, maybe the way we identify in terms of our gender. And recently we've seen groups forming over our positions on mandates and vaccinations. This is regularly referred to as identity politics, but I want to be careful about using that term because it carries significantly negative connotations. I want to say first, although I'm about to criticize our groupings, that groupings are important. That as humans, we thrive and need community. We need connection. We need affinity with each other. We are creatures that need to relate. And a civil society is a tolerant one. But all that means is that tolerance presupposes that we have different views and perspectives, groups to which we belong to identify with. The concern for me, is that there's a growing exclusivity happening in our groupings. It's arising from the way in which we think of ourselves. So if I was to put it in narrative form, um, and this is one I've experienced myself as as a university leader, you who are in power are not like me. You're not in my group, and you cannot possibly understand me, and hence you cannot govern in my interests even despite your best intentions to govern fairly. You and I are simply too different from one another for me to trust you. That's what I worry about in the way in which we're grouping ourselves in society. Our propensity to more exclusive groups that perpetuates the belief that I cannot trust you will threaten our fragile democracy. As Tom said, core to democratic governance is an us. That we decide together how we should be governed. And an us represented by those elected to parliament. But in my view, that sense of collective us is under significant threat here in Aotearoa. So these two features of our modern landscape, the communication revolution, if I may call it that, and the identity exclusivity that we see growing. Combined to unfortunate effect, our tendency to identify with smaller confined groupings is reinforced by the mechanisms of online media and its algorithms. It seems to me that we are losing a shared identity, and that is a part of what's feeding into our lack of trust. Now this this loss of shared identity isn't absolute, thankfully there is hope. We're still a collective in this country for some purposes, especially in relation to comparing ourselves to other nations. We will continue to believe that we are the best rugby and netball players in the world, (laughs) even in spite of evidence to the contrary. And I still see moments, movements of hope and unity. Record numbers of people from all walks of life are currently learning te reo Māori alongside each other in Wānanga programs up and down this country. Local organizations are playing an increasing role in the provision of social welfare. Some of our most effective mobilization of aid and assistance following the East Coast Cyclone earlier this year came from where? Local iwi and marae. And the climate issue has seen a growing number of young people seeking to actively participate in democracy to bring about change. So what might the solutions be to our problem of distrust here? Tom has advocated for the renewing of the elite and a focus on leadership and institutions. I agree wholeheartedly. But, and as he said, there are other things we need to think about too, and I want to add this. In my view, the increasing division of our society into identity groups suggests to me that it's not just our elite who are in need of renewing. It's all of us. We need to be renewed. We need to find a shared identity and a common good. And the means of renewal to this common good can arise out of our centres of cultural production. Government, businesses, unions, the media, our marae, our runanga, our houses of worship, our universities, and our NGOs. What will New Zealand's settled consensus be? Can it be tititi? whose presence for more and more of us is becoming celebrated now. And that is a wonderful thing. But if that is to be so, we're going to have to accept that the content and meaning of the tititi is not settled. And we need to welcome discussion on both its origins, and there's a beautiful origin story about tititi that needs more time in this country, and discussion about its meaning. Can we revise the notion of the common good to our place here in Aotearoa, shaped by an understanding of our varying experiences and the needs of our wider populace? These conversations need to occur at at a national level. Our institutions must be places of diversity and of the common good. We need a reinvigorated contest of ideas. We need a healthy and a vibrant public square founded on respect and an ethos of inquiry. We need to broaden the cultural modes of debate that we use in our public square if we're going to ensure that all of our voices are listened to. But I want to suggest at a local level that there are lots of opportunities for us as individuals to step up and to step into the conversation. It may be as simple as facilitating discussions with your children or your grandchildren about the environment or the elections, for example, and modelling what it is to care deeply about this land. It may be fostering the learning of today, so that you and those around you are introduced to a different way of knowing and seeing the world. And for some of you, it will be being called to step into difficult leadership positions and to serve with courage and virtue and vision and care for such a time as this. I want to close with two final offerings to this evening's conversation from the beautiful Te Waipunamu, the South Island of this country, a place that I'm blessed to currently call home. First, a news update from the Clutha District. Those of you who are not sure what the Clutha District is, the capital of the Clutha District is Gore. (laughs) So just this week, Staff.co.nz reported that Mayor Brian Cadigan had three times in the past week been out repairing broken election hoardings, which he says most often appear to be damaged by people rather than the wind and the weather. I'll forgive you for thinking it's the wind and the weather that out so. Cadogan, describing himself as a centralist and not aligned to a particular party, repairs hoardings for all parties because he believes in democracy. For democracy to work, he says, we've all got to show respect There's nothing more insulting from a visual perspective than the constant stomping on the billboards. If you're walking home from the pub drunk and you've made a 30 second mistake, ah, well that's like whatever. But if you've got up in the middle of the night to knock over by stealth, the one sign you really hate, you've got a problem. (laughs) Is that all you've got to offer democracy? (laughs) Thank you, Brian. What is it that we in this room have to offer democracy in a time and in a nation where we are becoming and need to continue to become more aware of each other and of our needs? And perhaps just as important to answer, what does democracy offer us? Secondly and finally, a gift from the iwi of Kaitahu, the tangata whenua of te Waipunamu. It's a Toki, a proverb, a Māori proverb, and it goes like this. Ko te tua ia ia mano o te takata. In the translation, we possess the strength of the many. It is the bravery of a multitude of thousands of people. It's up to us as the thousands of people of this land. Nō reira, nā mihi mahana, kia te nā
1: Thanks for listening to the Maxim Institute podcast. If you'd like to hear more from us and keep up with the rest of our research and analysis of politics and policy in New Zealand, you can sign up on the homepage of our website to get our monthly forum email and invitations to future Maxim Institute events. You can search and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeart Radio, or wherever you get your podcasts. From the team at Maxim, Matewa, goodbye for now.